You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to take them and turn to Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2, verse 11 through 13 we're reading, and I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's Word this morning. Job chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, doing a series called Singing in the Rain, and just talking about how to keep your joy when you're in the middle of suffering, and how to, uh, how to just trust in the Lord, and how to maintain your testimony, and how to uh, keep that joy no matter how bad things may be getting around you. So we're looking at the life of Job, and today we're looking at the subject, the danger of poor counsel. Last week we talked about keeping the family together in a storm, maintaining, holding on to those relationships. And today we're in uh, Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Let's read together. And when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Tamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, that is Job, they set out from their homes, they met together by agreement, to go and to sympathize with him and to comfort him. Now, remember those words. Okay, I want you to look at that again. They set out from their homes, they met together by agreement to go and to do what? And to sympathize with him and to do what? And to comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their clothes, their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. Now watch this. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that you love us and that you care about us. And Lord, we give you all glory, for you alone are worthy to be praised. And Father, I know, dear Lord, even as that video a moment ago demonstrated so well that, Lord, we can be somewhere and not really be there at all. Times, dear Lord, that a spouse may be talking to us and we're not hearing a word they say. Times, dear Lord, when our children are trying to get our attention and tell us something and we don't even hear them. And dear Lord, yes, even in times like this, when you draw us together as a corporate body of believers and you want to speak to us, uh, dear Lord, we can be guilty of not, not hearing anything. But Lord, we pray that that will not be the case today. That from every part of this worship and the preaching of your word, that dear Lord, you'll speak very clearly and we'll be here and we'll hear you. Because it would be a tragedy for you to speak to us today and for us not to really be here to hear it. Maybe that's why, Lord, you said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Because you knew that, dear Lord, we become distracted even within our minds. And if we're not careful, we can turn off, tune out. So, Father, we pray, dear Lord, that you speak very clearly. We ask you, dear Lord, to cleanse us, forgive us, May our hearts be receptive. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Dr. Ron Herod, who was a pastor of First Baptist Church, Kenner, Louisiana, for many, many years, and, and, and Sheila and I, uh, our pastor, while we were in seminary, tells the story in a book that he wrote one time that he had finished a, a Sunday evening service. After that service, um, he kind of was hanging around and fellowshipping with some of the people. A lot of the people, especially the senior adults, had already left and had gone to their homes. And his chairman of deacons came up to him and said, Dr. Herod said, uh, I need to speak to you for a minute. Pulled Dr. Ron Herod off to the side and said, Brother Ron... Uh, uh, our, uh, one, of our, one of their main senior adults said one of our main senior adults and called the woman by name said uh, she has just received news that her daughter, son-in-law and both of the grandkids have been killed in a tragic accident, a head-on collision. Dr. Ron Harrod said this was her only daughter This was all the family that she had. Her husband had died a few years ago. This was all the family that that she had. Dr. Ron here talks about the weight and the pain of going to that home and sitting with that senior adult who in one phone call, in one moment, had lost everything that was dear to her. Her daughter, son-in-law, and both of her grandchildren. When I shared that story Wednesday night, Clyde, who I, and I know what Clyde was thinking, because Clyde has a daughter named Amy, a son-in-law named Darren, and two beautiful grandchildren, uh, Brecken and Cooper. I know that immediately Clyde just simply reiterated what all of us in prayer meeting were feeling. He said, I don't think I would have a reason to live. I mean, just out. It just came out. And then he added, but for God. Now, I want you to stay with me here because the first part of Clyde's answer is the world's response. You see, the world, when tragedy comes, the world will answer with that part that says, I don't think that I could go on living. Now, everybody stay with me here. This is critical. Okay? I want you to picture this pulpit as being a picture of blessings. Now, to uh, the world, if the world is leaning, and even for some of us, we have a tendency to lean on the blessings that God gives us. Okay, that's where we draw strength. That's where we draw faith. That's where we draw in that relationship with Christ. But what if all of a sudden these blessings collapse or they're removed? Then the question then becomes, what are we leaning on? Now, what Clyde said was this. He said, I wouldn't have any reason to live. But then, in a moment, he said, but for God. You see, as a believer, as a Christian, we understand that we can never lean on the blessings of God. That's not what God calls us to lean on. God calls us to lean on the giver of the blessings. Okay? 
The blessings are just a, a, a fringe benefit. But it's critical for you and I to understand that when you and I are in a storm and we have suffered tragedy, that Satan is trying to remove what you and I lean on or to reveal what we're leaning on. Now what is even more critical, and I want you to stay with me here, the Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Trust and lean in the Hebrew are the same word. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll direct your path. In other words, what the Bible says is this. You and I are not to lean on the blessings of God. We are to lean on God. And there's a difference. Because sometimes, as we said a couple of weeks ago, we go from riches to rags. We lose blessings. Now, stay with me because this is critical and if you haven't been there, you'll be there one day. Trust in the Lord. I'm leaning on God. Now watch this. But what if God, and if my theology of God, is all of a sudden brought under question? In other words, I'm leaning against God, but stay with me here. But what happens when God goes against my theology, my understanding of God? It's easy to say God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Well, that's just great. But my friend, what happens in our lives when God does something, our theology comes under, our theology comes under the scrutiny of a storm and we are finding ourselves battling with a God we don't understand. We are leaning against a God that we've been leaning against. We're not leaning against the blessings of God. We're leaning against the giver of the blessings. But all of a sudden, God does something that doesn't make any sense. It is the man who looks at me who walks into the office and says, Wait a minute, Pastor. And I've had him do it. You said, you preached a while back in Malachi during stewardship emphasis that if I tithe, if I faithfully give to God, that God will take care of me. Well, I lost my job Friday. Or somebody comes into your office and says, Pastor, you preach that in Proverbs 22, 6, that train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. Pastor, my child was arrested last night and put in jail. Where is God? Then you know is what's getting ready to be the next statement. You see, Job was in a theological crisis. God had done the opposite of Job's theology. Now stay with me here. We call this the dark night of the soul. It's that time when God does not make sense. When our understanding and our theology that has been so shaped by what we've read in conferences and books and even the songs that we sang, all of a sudden that doesn't make sense. You see, it's one thing for us to say God is good all the time. All the time God is good. I was thinking yesterday, uh, Legend Alicia came by and they brought my little five-month-old little baby boy, that little grandson of mine, Ethan. 
And we just laughed and oohed and odd. And I was sitting there looking at him and just rejoicing and fellowshipping so much, but I thought about Adrian Rogers. Dr. Rogers said, Joyce called him one day and said, get home quick, something's wrong with the baby. I think his name was Clay, five months old. Adrian Rogers said he got home, he went running into the house, and something was wrong with the baby. The baby was not breathing or having trouble breathing. Perfectly healthy, normal little five-month-old boy. Adrian Rogers said he grabbed that boy up. He didn't even wait on Joyce. Said he ran out the door and he was running to the ER. He going to the hospital. He got to the hospital and the baby died. And he said he'll never forget the moment of walking back out and meeting Joyce and their faces meeting when he had to tell Joyce that the baby was gone. You see, there are times in our life that we go through storms and difficulties in our theology of what we think of God and how God works and how we understand the Word of God, all of a sudden is thrown into a crisis and God doesn't make sense. He does something that we just can't understand. We can't put our hands or we can't put our arms around. We can't, we can't seem to, to reconcile it to our theology. And we call that a dark night of the soul. And if you haven't gone through that, let me tell you, you one day will. It's coming. And I want to say something. There's lessons when a saint goes through the storms because this is Job. Job is in a crisis. He's in a theological crisis. It's not just a matter... Listen, the problem is not that God's taken the blessings away. Listen to this. Job lost everything. He lost his wealth. He lost his riches. He lost, he lost all of his children in a tornado. He lost everything. The problem wasn't this. The blessings were removed. Job was still standing. His health was taken away. Job's still standing. But the tragedy in Job's life and the crisis of the book of Job is that Job is in a theological crisis. God doesn't make sense. And Job finally says, Go that God were a man that I might reason with him. And sooner or later, we all find ourselves there. Lessons when a saint goes through these times. Number one, here real quickly. When you are going through, or when you see somebody in a storm like Job's gone through, or maybe you're going to witness or be a part of, you will hear hard, cold, angry outburst. Job says, I don't understand what I'm leaning against. Number two, people will often be suicidal. Listen, please care. I told you about a church, a Metro Jackson church, a man, a leader in that church, a, a man told me at the bookstore a couple of weeks ago, he said a woman came down, stood, just broke down at the altar, wept and cried, talked to the pastor. The next day took a gun, shot herself in the head looking at the church. People are hurting. Our food pantry has been cleaned out just like that. People just coming over and over and over and over. We finally sent word to Pine Lake. We've sent word to First Baptist Summit. We're sending word to you right now. We need food. People are hurting. And sometimes when you and I are witnessing that, we need to understand those people are going to be, sometimes they're going to have hard, cold, angry outbursts. They're going to say, I don't understand. What, God, what is God doing? This doesn't make sense. Where is God? They'll even ask that. 
Number two, people will often be suicidal. They'll not want to live. You know what Job said in Job chapter 3? Look at this. It said in Job chapter 3 verse 1, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. In verse 11 in chapter 3, he says, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? You know what Job was saying? He was saying, God, I wish I were dead. You say, well, you know, that's bad. Moses wished that he was dead. Elijah wished that he was dead. Job wished that he was dead. Have you ever witnessed, have you ever understood how many men and women in the Scripture wished they were dead? Number four, if you don't know what to say, then don't say anything. You know, what's interesting in, in Job chapter 2, verse 13, that these friends came, they sat on the ground with him. The Bible says for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Can you imagine not saying a word for a week? So sometimes when you and I come alongside of somebody who's in a theological crisis, they're in the midst of a storm, we have to understand we're going to hear things out of them that are going to, that are going to hurt. There's cold, angry outbursts. We're going to see people that may even be suicidal. They'll say, you know, I don't even want to live. Why am I alive? Number three, we'll have to grieve with them. We can grieve with them, but don't judge them. Number four, if you don't know what to say, then don't say nothing at all. Number five, you may say, well, you know, I've gone through something very similar to what you're going through. My friend, hear me. People are made differently. Some people are stronger than others. But this is where we find Job. And last week we said this, that Job was in a storm and the enemy was trying to separate those relationships. We said last week that when you and I get in a difficulty, when we get in a storm, then all of a sudden the enemy is trying to pull us away, isolate us, and alienate us from people around us. Let me give you an example. When you're in a financial storm, a lot of times a man and a woman will turn against each other. If parents are having trouble parenting a child, they'll turn against each other, sibling against sibling, and you'll see those relationships begin to break down. This is what the enemy wants to do. When you and I are in a storm, the enemy wants to isolate, separate you, and break down every relationship that you're involved in. He would be effective. He tried to turn God against Job, Job against God, Job against his wife, his wife against Job, and Job against his friends, and his friends against Job. In fact, I said last week, when you and I are in a storm, what do we do? Number one, we protect those relationships. When you're in a storm, and men, let let me give you an example. When you're in a storm, you're going through a financial crisis, things are not working out well, You're you're in the middle of a storm, whatever that storm may be, men, and all of a sudden you see you and your wife and you're beginning to argue and fight. Men, that's when you stop. And you think for a moment, you think, you know, this is exactly what the enemy wants to do. We can't allow the enemy to have a victory here. You know, we said last week, stop, drop, and pray. So a man realizes, because the Bible says you and I are to be as gentle as a dove, but shrewd as a serpent, which means we're to outsmart our enemy. I remember in Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Going into some of these secret meetings as a chaplain, we would go in these these meetings where they were playing these war games. 
And they would have just rooms of massive, it looked like a life game, only it was real terrain and the, and the layout of uh, maybe of Europe. And they would be trying to calculate if this happened, what the enemy would do, and how we would respond, and this and that. They were trying to outsmart the enemy. Hear me. When you and I are in a storm, we need to remind ourselves that, wait a minute, the enemy is trying to break down relationships. He's trying to isolate me, so protect those relationships. Practice those rituals. This is no time to quit praying, to quit reading your Bible, and to quit going to church. That's what the enemy wants. Because that's where your strength, that's where your faith is drawing nutrients from. All of a sudden you say, well, you know, there's no need reading the Bible. That doesn't make any difference. There's no need in praying. That doesn't make any difference. And you begin to quit practicing the disciplines of the faith. And number three, we said this, pursue what is right. When you and I are in a storm, what the enemy wants you to do is say this. Well, undoubtedly it doesn't do any good to do right and to live right and try to do right. So I'm just going to give up, quit. I'm going to throw in the towel. If you can't beat them, then what? Join them. Now let me ask you something. You really are, being, you really are in the middle of a test. How many of you wrote it down? Three things. Protect those relationships. Practice those rituals. Pursue what is right. Well, pastor, why should I write that down? Because if you're not in a storm, one day you will be. If you're not in a storm, somebody else may be in a storm, and you may be able to give good counsel. How can you give good counsel if you're not equipped to do it? If you're working with somebody and their marriage is falling apart and, they're just, and you've got some woman sitting there, ladies, and she's just lambasting, ripping and tearing her husband apart, has it ever occurred to you to say, well, wait a minute, you know what my pastor said yesterday? He said that we need to protect those relationships when we're in a storm. You need to understand your enemy is trying to destroy your marriage. He's trying to pull you away, isolate you, because listen, he is far more effective in defeating and destroying your life if he can get you by himself. You know, there's a big thing about bullying. I want you to know something. Satan is a bully. He is far more able to attack you when you're alone, isolated, separated from other people who love you. So protect those relationships, practice those rituals, pursue what is right. But now we come, we see Job's friends. We're introduced to Job's friends. In chapter 2, verse 11, it said, Job's friends, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Tamathite, heard about the troubles that had come upon him, and they set out from their homes. They met together by agreement to go to sympathize and to comfort him. These are caring, loving friends that that see a man in the middle of a storm. He's in a, he's in a crisis. He's lost everything. He's also in a theological crisis. So they go to him to comfort him and to give him strength. They start out as caring and loving friends, but they turn into a team of lawyers who are cross-examining Job as if he were on the stand. 
What happened to these friends? Hear me. And it's a mistake that sometimes we make when people are in a storm or when we are in a storm. They were trying to find out the why rather than the what. You know, it may be better sometimes when people are going through storms, whether it be you in a storm or other people, it may be better to ask, what is God doing? What is God doing? Rather than why is God doing this? There's a difference. You see, most cases when you and I go through a storm, when we're in a difficulty, when we're in a crisis, we kind of want to throw up our hands and say, why me, God? Why are you doing this to me? And sometimes, even when we come along some, beside somebody else who's suffering, we want to try to figure out why. Well, why is this happening? Okay? Rather than the what. In other words, wouldn't it be better to say, what is God doing? Rather than why is this happening? Is there ever time to ask why? No. But let me tell you something it's far better for that person to discover themselves why than for you to tell them why. Okay? The prodigal son, the Bible said, came to himself. He figured out the why. He said, you know, the reason this has happened to me is because I've rebelled against my father. I left the home. I took the inheritance. I blew it on whores and... And, and prostitution, and I blew it on drugs and alcohol. I've blown it on all of this, and that's why I'm in the shape that I'm in. That's why I'm where I'm at right now. He came to the point, the Bible said he came to himself. He figured out the why. When you and I are counseling one another, when we're going through a storm, sometimes we're better off to ask, God, what are you doing? Not why are you doing it? You remember a few weeks ago we said this, Suffering is a divine appointment. Suffering is a loving God drawing us close. Suffering as a spiritual backdrop. Suffering can be a time for divine revelation. Suffering brings intimacy with God. Suffering sometimes is the price of ministry to the poor. You see, the point is, all of those statements talk about why, talk about what God's doing rather than why He's doing it. Has it ever occurred to us when we're talking to somebody in a storm to look at them and say, well, let me ask you something. What do you think God's doing in your life right now? You see, they're saying, well, you know, I don't understand why this happened. And then you come along and say, well, you know, what is God doing in your life right now? What do you mean, what is God doing in my life right now? Well, God's doing something, isn't He? Get them to turn from thinking why to what. The problem is with the book of Job is it's so much material and it's so difficult to get through. I'm sitting here trying to struggle to figure out. You can tell it. Because there's just so much here. But let me take two things real quickly and then we'll close. Let me give you one example of a man who messed up and this man named Eliphaz the Temanite. I want you to, I want you to turn over to Job chapter 4. Okay, look at Job chapter 4. Because we're introduced to this man. I, w- I, want you to, I want you to stay with me here. I call him a spiritual superman. Okay? This man, Eliphaz, has a spiritual spasm. 
He's the guy that uses the King James family Bible to come in and beat you over the head with it. He's either a cheerleader or a cop. Okay? Now watch him. In, in, in Job chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. In Job chapter 4, beginning at verse, I mean at verse 12. Look at verse 12. In Job chapter 4, verse 12, Eliphaz, one of these men, comes and he sits down next to Job. Now, he's been sitting there a week. He hasn't said a word. Now, all of a sudden, this spiritual superman has some words of wisdom to give Job. Now, everybody stop and look this way for a minute. Let me ask you something. Who's Job? Job is a blameless man who fears God and shuns evil. Okay, when God looked across all of humanity, did he pick up Eliphaz and say, Satan, you ought to consider my servant Eliphaz? He didn't mention Eliphaz. Who did he mention? He mentioned Job. Okay, now watch this. In Job chapter 4, verse 12, this is Eliphaz. Eliphaz says, look, I got a word for you, and let me tell you how I got it. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on men. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped. But I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker. Everybody think about this. Eliphaz is enamored with his experience. I mean, here a man... Now now think about this. Here is a man that has lost... This is the Bill Gates of his day. He's lost everything. He's lost his family. He's alienated from his wife. He's covered in boils and sores. He's sitting out there in a pile of dust with ashes on his head, wrapped in burlap, scraping these... Pus oozing sores on his body. And here, Eliphaz, who's come to comfort him, is a spiritual superman. He is enamored with his experience. His attention is not on Job. It's not even on the message that the Spirit supposedly is giving. It is on the experience itself. Now, why is that important? I can remember as a kid watching some of the charismatic groups that came on TV. And you know, there's some of them still on today. They got a hairdo about that high. And eyelashes that long. And it looks like you're looking at a coon. The eyes are so black. And, you know, in a Rolex watch and a half a million dollar home and, and all of this. And, but I used to, I used to my, my, my mom or my grandmother, some of those people would listen to that. And I'd see somebody on TV say, I got a word of knowledge. I got a word of knowledge out there for somebody. There's somebody out there just came on me. I got goosebumps. Whoa. Just got to chill. Got a word of knowledge. Somebody out there's got a bad knee. And I was thinking, I was a teenager, I was thinking, well, wait a minute. There's millions of people out there. Somebody surely has a bad knee. It, and they'd go on to talk about a bad knee. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, and, and my grandmother, I've watched her. She had arthritis in her knee. She'd perk up a little bit. She'd look. And they'd say, wait a minute, for that word of knowledge, I... God just told me if you'll be faithful and send $500 to this ministry. 
God will bless you and bring healing to your body. You may joke, but I saw it. I watched my grandmother do that. You see, a spiritual superman can become insensitive to suffering. If you don't believe it, watch this. Look in verses, uh, look at verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Listen to how he starts off here in verses 4 through 7. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you. You're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, your blameless ways, your hope? Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. I mean, he starts off so good. Now read verses 8 and 9. Watch this. As I observe, chapter 4, this is Eliphaz. As I observe, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. This man's moving from being sympathetic to being cruel. In verse 9, at the breath of God they are destroyed, at the blast of His anger they perish. Can I ask you something? How were His, th- how were his ten children killed? A wind. You see, Eliphaz is, Eliphaz is insensitive. He is a spiritual superman, but he's not getting his insight and his wisdom, I don't believe, in no way from God. And if you don't believe it, go over to Job chapter 42 and you'll see where Job has to offer a sacrifice for this spiritual muckety-muck who's given all this advice. Now look at chapter 5, and I know, man, I, this is too much. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. In chapter 5, verse 17, Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Lord. He goes on, and, and, and I was going to read all the way through verse 27. I don't know if I've got time to do that. But what, is he, what does he do? He goes on and he gets... Listen, he not only begins to have a little bit of a judgmental spirit as he's trying to counsel, then all of a sudden he becomes this cheerleader. And by verse 27, he said, Well, I have to read a little bit of it. He says in verse 18, For he wounds, but he also binds. He injures, but his hands heal. For from six calamities he'll rescue you. In seven, no harm will befall you. In famine, he'll ransom you from death. And in battle from the stroke of the sword, you will be protected from the lash of the tongue and need not fear when destruction comes. You'll laugh at destruction and famine and need not fear the beast of the, of the earth. For you will have a covenant with the stones of the, of the field. The wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure. You will take stock of your property and find nothing missing. You will know that your many children that your children will be many. Listen, he didn't have children. He didn't have stock. He didn't even have a tent. And your descendants, like the grass of the earth, they were dead. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like sheaves gathered in season. This is a man that's lost everything and is asking God to kill him. Look at verse 27 of chapter 5. We have examined this, and it is true. So hear it and apply it to your life. You know what he did by verse 27? Andy, I thought about you. He got on this theological bandwagon, and when he he got through, he he gave all the other guys, he gave the other guys a high five and said, now let's sing, uh, oh, happy day. You see, the danger is is that this man was spiritually a superman, but he was insensitive. He was wanting to join in a chorus of put on a happy face when this man had lost everything. I'll rework this sermon and preach it again next week. 
You know, my second point was a spiritual superman becomes a savage saint. Am I struggling? Yes. Because there's too much material. But I will say this. I have been here. I have been sick since 1994. A little while ago, I asked the deacons to pray for me. Sometimes missionaries come home sick and we don't get well. And when I came home, I had a church, a large church in this Metro Jackson area where Sheila and I furloughed that every Sunday I'd see a man, he'd beeline toward me. Sheila's back there smiling, nodding her head. Every Sunday I'd see this man beelining for me. Boy, he was coming right at me and I'd go, Oh God, not him again. God, please don't. Man, I was going to, I was going to Mayo Clinic. I'd been in, in the hospital in London. I'd been to doctors in Kenya, Nairobi. I'd been to doctors in Johannesburg, South Africa. I'd been to doctors in, uh, in Harare, Zimbabwe. But in England, by myself in the hospital, I was laying on a, on a, on, in the middle of a test, and I was all alone by myself. And I just finally said, God, whatever your will is, if, if you want me sick, and you can receive greater glory for this, then let it be. And I want you to know something. There was a presence of the Lord in that room. But this man, every time he'd see me, boy, he'd want to pray for me. And he'd make all kinds of insinuations. There's deep-bedded sin in your life. There's this, there's that. I mean, man, very, very judgmental, harsh spirit. And I'd get where I'd just, I'd just dodge him. I'd, I just wouldn't even want to be around him. And through the years, about 16 plus, about 16 plus years, I've had people pray over lay hands on, go on and on. And, it, and it, sometimes I just want to ask the question, has it ever occurred to you that Paul never was healed of his infirmity? Has it ever occurred to you that from Job chapter 3 to Job chapter 42, that could have been many, many years of, Paul, of Job's life. We don't know. Job, this righteous man, suffered greatly. We don't know how long it was before God restored it. It could have been many, many years. Can I say to you sometimes when it comes to suffering that we have poor theology? Our theology's been influenced by health and wealth theology that basically says as long as you don't have problems and everything's going all right in your life, you're all right with God. But my friend, I want you to understand this. Sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes we suffer, sometimes we go through pain, sometimes we go through storms, and sometimes those storms last for many years. Life is not easy. In the world, you'll have what? Tribulation. God has not called you in your life or in the life of other people who are suffering to try to figure out the why. Maybe God's called you and I to figure out the what. God, what are you doing? God, help me not to be a counselor like Eliphaz. Let's pray together. Lord, 
I've sure stumbled through this. Maybe, dear Lord, it's because Job is such a difficult book and maybe because, dear Lord, when you come to the dark night of the soul, when you're trying to correct unbiblical, poor theology, it could be that the enemy attacks like he never attacks. But God, I know there are people in this room that are suffering. And if they're not going through a storm, there are other people around them in their lives that are. And they need to know and understand how to minister to people who are hurting. Lord, you've not called us to take a Bible and beat people over the head or take Scripture and throw it at them as if we're insensitive to the pain and the hurt they're going through. Lord, sometimes we need medicine, but the nurse doesn't come in and throw it at us. The best doctors are those that come in and like my good doctor, David Fleming. Those doctors that come in and pat you on the back and shake your hand, sit down and smile and say, man, what are you doing here? Who with tenderness and compassion reach out and love love on you a while. And when they finally make a diagnosis and they begin to give the medication. They do it with a kindness and a gentleness that you feel better when you've left no matter how sick you were. Lord, we long for that in nurses and doctors, but how often do we as Christians look like an angry or embittered nurse that doesn't really want to be there, doesn't want to do that job? We get mad at a health industry that we say is broke, but dear Lord, how often is the church broke? And how often does our counsel to those that are hurting sound insensitive and hard and harsh? How many times do we sound like Eliphaz who's just trying to give a spiritual pep talk or making an implication that maybe there's something wrong in your life. Maybe this is because of sin. Sometimes, dear Lord, people are doing the best they can to raise their children and they still have problems. Sometimes those marriages that are trying to walk with you and spend time with you every day. They still go through those storms. Sometimes, dear Lord, those people who faithfully tithe and give, dear Lord, go through financial crisis. Sometimes, dear Lord, we all go through dark nights of the soul when we look toward the heaven and we say, God, I don't understand why you don't make sense right now. God, I don't know what you're doing. God, I can't see you right now. God, I can't hear you. But Lord, I pray, dear Lord, for those that are going through dark nights of the soul, that, dear Lord, they would continue to dig deep into your word because sooner or later they'll hear the whisper of the Savior saying, I'm here. You can trust me. I never left you. Lord, I stood by the bedside of a man in hospice. He couldn't even speak, dear Lord, a trach in his throat. Dear Lord, unable to say anything. And as I prayed with him, I'd see his hands waving up and down. He was letting me know that everything's all right. God's here. So Father, I pray right now that, dear Lord, for anyone in the middle of a storm, 
Dear Lord, even as this preacher stumbled through this message, dear Lord, and I'm not, I'm not happy with it, but dear Lord, maybe somehow these sweet people have gotten a message from you. So Lord, speak to us. And if there's one here that doesn't know you today, that they may give their heart and their life to you. Whatever their needs may be, may they come to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.